Hello and welcome to Buddha and the Body Coach. I'm Alexandra Stone and here with T. Proctor. So who's the Buddha? And so I come to show you. We're here to talk about the things that matter, what makes your life more meaningful and fulfilled. Oh, I'm so glad to know you. So glad to help you throw those fears away. I'll let the sunbeam shine from me. I will light up the hills and then I'll be a part of all you see. Welcome, welcome friends to this episode of Buddha and the Body Coach. How are you feeling today, listeners? Are you triggered? <laughs> today we have a podcast which is going to be centered around the subject of emotional reactivity. So this is a big one out there in culture right now. And what do we mean by emotional reactivity? Well, the way we're talking about it, we're going to define it as emotions that are bigger, longer lasting, and more frequent than necessary. And usually about self-protection. So this is quite a deep topic. And like a lot of our other topics, you know, we kind of thought we'll just dive into reactivity. Maybe we'll do a short podcast. <laughs> and it ended up where we discovered that it just kind of had all of these different threads and connected into, you know, all the different layers of who we are. And so we're going to get in and explore that today, aren't we, T? Yes. And like you said, emotional reactivity and reactivity in itself is deep and profound. And so in a way, we're going to look at it on a couple levels. I'm going to open up the first level, but mostly we're going to be talking about the second level because the primary level of reactivity is um, the reactivity that is the ego self or the personality. And this is a reactivity that um, Eckhart, Tolle, Eckhart Tolle was conveying when he used the phrase, whatever it is, I'm against it. <laughs> that, that reminds me of something that Adjashante said, which kind of goes with what you're saying. He said, you know, the, the ego, if we could see it, it's curled up in the pit of your stomach like a little fist. <laughs> well, you know, that's funny. <laughs> and it says no. Yes, that's funny because actually when, when uh, in the diamond approach, when you get into the deep um, visceral experiences of ego, it's said to be very much like the experience of snot. <laughs> oh, and Thick just, and viscous. Like that's that. hilarious and, and probably true. Um, oh, I just want to go back and just say the Diamond Approach is a school that T was in for many, many years. You can look that up online. And Adyashanti is a teacher of mine. So Also known as Adyashanti. <laughs> we'll put them in the show notes anyway. Yeah. Okay. So, snot. <laughs> so, snot. So, so the deep... Uh, conundrum of existential snot. <laughs> it's my next poem. Right. So the deepest level, level one, the primary level of reactivity 
is that ourselves, as we tend to know them, our everyday ordinary selves, are made up of these kind of hopes and desires. And within that hope and desire is an inherent rejection of reality of what is. Now, this can be really overt, and that's more the type 2 reactivity that we're going to be talking about today, but this can be very subtle. And as we get into self-investigation and self-understanding, we come to understand more about how subtly we're rejecting ourselves, our situations of the world. And I want to be clear that this is not about doing things to make our lives better or having aspirations, but rather this kind of inherent rejection, this feeling that somehow life in itself is imperfect, this feeling that maybe we've been robbed of our right to have what we should have, this feeling that somehow, somewhere, something isn't right. And there's a core dissatisfaction. You know, actually in Buddhism, one of the noble truths is the truth of suffering. That It's said in many different ways, but that life is suffering, which I find a bit dramatic to say life is suffering. But what they're pointing to is the inherent dissatisfaction of the ego self. This state that says there always should be something more. Something should always be different. It's a kind of a hungry ghost state, if we might say. It's, it's this feeling of like insatiably needing to be filled, but having a very small mouth through which we can <laughs> um, only put very little thin needle-like tastes of things in. So we have a bloated, hungry belly, but a, a very small mouth. There's other states. That's, uh, that's one particular one. But what I'm giving is the overall bigness of this issue of reactivity. We are living in a state of rejection of what is. And this is really common. You hear this, almost any major spiritual teacher out there will talk about that rejection of what is. So I want to lay that groundwork. That's the deep stuff. I want to lay that in so that can just kind of rest in the consciousness and maybe kind of work its way down deeper as we come back and we talk about more of the everyday emotional reactivity that we experience. Because this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road and, and the stuff that we're dealing with in our conscious and lived experience. So again, we're talking about emotions that are bigger, longer lasting, and more frequent than necessary. Yeah. Maybe we could just kind of open that up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was on a lot of thoughts when you were speaking there and like, but you know, one of the things about the the Buddhist teaching is that, you know, we, we actually really love our suffering and, you know, we kind of, we, we, we hold it close and it's hard for us to give it up. <laughs> so, yeah, you well, know. Well, that's, that is actually because we are attached in Buddhist philosophy, we're attached to self. Exactly, you know, so it is, it's, what, what I find is there's this paradoxical thing where, you know, what, it, what it's about, this reactivity, is, is self-protection. But then, you know, we've got this other face of it, and 
they seem to rub up against one another but yet they're kind of working together it's really it's it's kind of an odd sort of philosophical question so when we talk about self-protection as you're saying what is the self we're protecting yeah and i guess we're going kind of back again around into the deeper stuff and this deeper groundwork but this self that we're protecting is what we call a self-image the ego is a self-image ego image and that idea is i am the culmination of all these experiences i've had i am my body self i am what everybody's told me over the years i am how everybody's treated me over the years i am the things that i want and need whether i can get them or not i am this great combination of all these ideas and images that get constantly snowballed as we live our years of life yeah and it's it's one of its primary focuses is is about getting power and and pushing away or rejecting the feeling of being powerless you know so it's it's all about okay out in the world let's say we're out in uh, traffic and somebody's cutting us off you know like how dare you you know everything's a sort of an affront to the the, the self-image and that's where that kind of reactivity comes from and you know we all have like these windows of tolerance shall we say these areas of life where we're highly reactive and less reactive and it's it's kind of individual but you know there are certain there are certain areas aren't there listeners where this shows up for all of us so traffic would be one right i mean traffic is a great place to to talk because it it has this kind of unique place in our culture and our lives that it's this removed space and we're in this little bubble where we can kind of have our different emotions or have our different feelings and and you know especially if we're alone maybe or or if we feel safe with our passenger we can we can really let it loose and we can explore these oftentimes meaner parts of ourselves yeah. But, I, you know, this has made me think of um, when we were talking about examples of traffic. Do you remember the thing that really makes me upset in traffic when somebody does it? Well, when somebody tailgates. Well, that, <laughs> there's tailgating. So there's this thing where when you're oh, in yeah. traffic. I know what you're going to say. <laughs> when you're in traffic and you put your blinker on to get over, and then the person that would be the person you'd get in front of immediately speeds up and closes that gap so you can't get over. So this is one of my pet peeves in traffic. Well, when I actually explored that, I realized that when I was a kid, my mom specifically used to say, watch this. I'm going to put on my blinker and this guy's going to speed up and he's going to he's going to block me from getting over. So that was transmitted to me as something worthy of being indignant about. This is a thing. And, and not only that, I could be righteous. Like, look, first of all, I've done the right thing. I've put on my blinker. I've signaled my intention. I haven't cut you off. I've been polite to you. And then what did you do to me? Mm. You were rude. Well, anger, actually, when they study it, you know, in in the body, it does give feelings of being morally superior. So anger does actually feel good to us. Right. So in that feeling good, it's giving us a sense of support. So what's happened is, you know, actually, factually, I've... I've pulled a little lever, it may have made a little light go on that somebody may have seen, and that person uh, may have responded by aggressively taking up their space, or just may have been oblivious to my blinker. At any rate, 
what's happened inside me is this whole cascade of self, this whole cascade of like, I'm doing the right thing. Somebody else is blocking me. They're taking something away from me, myself. And so now this anger rises up to protect me from something. Yeah, but it's also a way of you, of you saying your position in the tribe as well. Yeah, but I, that's not exactly where I'm going with it because what I'm saying is it's protecting me from a vulnerability. Mm, I don't okay. actually have the power to make that person do anything in traffic. Oh, yes, it's powerlessness. I am totally powerless to make that person do anything. All I have is my blinker, and this is back to this idea, my blinker and hope. so because of that hope you know i I hoped that in my picture my image of reality things would work like this and then when my image of reality didn't work out i needed to protect against the failure of that idea that reality should work like this Mm. you know well this is a good track actually and yeah i think we should just flow with this even though it's sort of not part of you know what we sort of laid out but um you know you know why like why do we do reactivity i mean it's it you know it has to feel good for us on some level right so like we've got that it gives us this sense of moral being morally superior you know that's one well that's that's one one. and but but i want to go back a little bit because what we talked about was that the first thing we think of when we think of emotional reactivity is anger or the hot emotions. Yeah. But that reactivity is actually a whole spectrum of emotion. Yeah. Rather than just the angry or the frustrated or the protective. Yeah. I get what you say. I mean, we're going to go into that. But what, what I mean is, like, when, when I hear... See, people from, like, Buddhist traditions or spiritual teachers or whatever, they talk about reactivity. It's always... Well, it's often with shame and it's like, don't do that, you know, and you're not enlightened or whatever if you do that. But I, but like, we do do it. And so there are good reasons why we do it. And some of those reasons actually feel, you know, positive to us. And that's why we kind of hold on to it as a culture. So that's what I wanted to kind of say, you know, with that, like there's, you know, the reactivity has a hold on us in a way that feels good. Yeah, I think that's a, actually a good point to make here because we have, there are actually the terms egotonic and egodystonic. So if there is a belief within us, and this is kind of part of what we need to interweave in this whole discussion, if there is a belief within us that what we are doing is for the best, it is for our own good, it is for our self-preservation, that's going to be really hard to even consider reevaluating, let alone giving up. Exactly. And also there's the other thing where, um, so something like when we see, I think anger is the most, um, I think, it, what, what did they, the, I was reading an article about it and they said like on social media, like rage and anger get the most clicks. So they're the most, the popular emotions. But what they found was, say that you have a number of people within your group on social media who are expressing negative emotions, you're much more likely to express negative emotions because you're mirroring. And going back to traffic, sometimes when we're in traffic together and you'll be 
you know somebody's indicating and speeding up and you're you start to you know um be contemptuous of them or you know whatever you want to whatever you say and and I will mirror you in that you know and it kind of feels good, good to have that that moment of negative merging right right you know so we so also it it kind of it's a, it's a contagion this reactivity it is and that thing you're talking about, that negative merging, is one reason we continue on with the reactivity because in hope we get supported by having that mm. reactivity. So now, not only am I having my reactivity, my experience is validated because you're sharing in that reactivity, that ridicule. And, you know, there are a number of things it can be doing. It can be protecting a vulnerability. It can be making one feel superior. Um, it can just be kind of on a chemical level giving dopamine. Yeah. Yeah. So we get in this, we get in this big charge. Other people are noticing us. We're getting attention, you know. And it, 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 like I said before, it can also really uh, assess our status within the tribe as well and when they look at you know anger and you know in its kind of anthropological context they think that's possibly why it kind of exists you know as a way to exit stasis and hierarchy within a group I mean also for change to be made right because often you will have to confront um power to uh, to have change well right actioned. so this is a good point here to stop and say that this is not about not having emotion yeah but that when we say emotions that are bigger longer lasting and more frequent than necessary what we're saying is that you're not really reacting emotionally appropriate to the situation at hand yeah, good. I, I'm glad that you said that because I really do want to clarify that because people think that they're enlightened when they're repressing. Right. So that's, um, you know, in a lot of practices, um, you know, particularly Buddhist and meditation practices, you're taught to kind of just observe the feelings, just observe the emotion. And that's really important to be able to do. But what tends to happen then is this state of observing and withdrawing. And you know what What even in psychology they call a kind of a, a schizoid withdrawal mm. from actually interacting and making contact with the world. Uh, that starts to become an idealized state or even in some people's view, as you were telling me a story earlier, that being the enlightened state. Yeah. You know, they talk about dispassionate mm. states a lot. And... It's almost impossible to do a lot of different meditations and not kind of get that flavor and not see people kind of acting like that as if they're withdrawn and dispassionate and, and uninterested in what comes and what goes. So it's a tricky situation. How do we have a full, passionate life? To where we're engaged, we're able to set boundaries, sometimes with even anger and aggression, to where we can grieve and have profound feeling but that feeling is located in the present moment, in the reality of what's going on, rather than a reaction to, say, something your mom did to you in the past or your dad did to you in the past. Exactly. That you're bringing forward day after day after day. 
You triggered. So yeah. Triggered. <laughs> it's one of those buzzwords, yeah. isn't it? So yeah, well, shall we go into, you know, some of um, some of these kind of reactive states and like what they look like? Because, you know, often we associate reactivity with these kind of uh, heated states. Yeah, so when we're talking about anger, you know, we're talking about a whole range of different states, really. Right. So, you know, we can be irritated. We could be feeling insulted. And I think that's a real common one. Like T was saying, you know, it's like an insult to the self, the self-image. We could be feeling bitter, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is actually... You know, bitter, resentful. I mean, they're usually connected into not upholding boundaries. But, you know, just really simple things, like just generally feeling a little bit frustrated sometimes and you're in this state of frustration and, you know, you're easily triggered there because you're kind of feeling vulnerable. Yeah, kind of walking around in a state of irritation or subtly walking around feeling kind of contrary feeling up against everything so that you need to push up against everything a little bit yeah it's is, funny is a state of reactivity it's funny because when you when you feel like that you that's the way you see the world like the the outer world does reflect your inner world and then the opposite like you can be feeling really open and loving and really in that parasympathetic nervous system and everybody appears to like you and you see them smiling at you, you know. They're not comparing unfavorably. Yeah, exactly. This is the kind of self-fulfilling quality of, of our inner state. So in terms of creating your own reality, you basically can kind of subconsciously perpetuate what the world looks like to you for instance, if you're angry and irritated and frustrated in everything that you do, you're going to have a world that reacts to you and reinforces the reasons that you're angry and irritated and frustrated. Yeah, and they do. It's a, it's a really funny thing, actually, because when you're feeling like that inside, you're feeling kind of vulnerable often, like you're not having a good day. You know, maybe you're a little bit upset and worried inside. And then, you know, people treat you badly. And then it sort of affirms this, you know, this view that you've got of the world. You know, people are bad and terrible, and you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm the, the poor victim in this situation. Why is everybody so bad? Like, and it, it sort of, like you said, perpetuates the, uh, the inner image. So yeah, it's, it's such a, it's a shitty thing, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, to put it simply. <laughs> <laughs> snotty anyway um and then some of these are the kind of more the states that we you know tend to more readily associate with reactivity um, i'd probably say fear yeah fear is definitely that kind of it's a bit elusive because sometimes we're very in touch with our fear. Some people, you know, think about Woody Allen is, is constantly anxious. That's, that's a state of fear. And there's, there's this, very, uh, this very demonstrative anxiety, there, you know, where he's doubtful and nervous and anxious. And that kind of fear, uh, that's an interesting type of fear. There's other people that have a lot of fear, but 
don't show the fear. It's one phrase we use is counterphobic. Some are even kind of like showing how how not scared they are. Um, so in fear, there can be kind of, and we're going to get into this a little more, but there could be kind of a freeze situation where the fear can be a bit frozen in the body. And so the person maybe doesn't even appear to be experiencing fear or being scared, but inside there's a kind of an anxious feeling or, or even kind of a confused doubting state or just an ongoing sense of stress or hypervigilance. Yeah. Um, desperation is one as well actually I, I think you know people people who are desperate tend to be more reactive interesting yeah so uh, you want to say more about that well if you think about let, let's say just really base so if you don't have enough resources then you're definitely going to be feeling uh I would, I'd say in, in my experience of myself and others, you know, raw, raw in the world. Right. You know, and it's like part of you that's trying to, to get what it needs comes forwards. And so it's fighting in the world. Yeah. And that's, um, that, that goes to show that there's an interplay between these different states of reactivity because then you move from a freeze maybe into a fight. I wanted to say just a little more about the actual fear and that there are actually fear states that are incredibly prominent um, where you're just absolutely horrified or, you know, terrified where your heart's pounding. You know, some people get this when they go to do public speaking um, or they have to, you know, if they face a potential humiliating situation. That's, that's one situation. Of course, those are situations where our ego is under imminent threat as we experience it. Now, this is a really good opportunity to make a differentiation here because it can be really important and it is really important that we have fear. In fact, you know, there are going to be times in our lives where we might need to run for our lives, literally. And we need to have that surge of adrenaline, that surge of energy, and that surge of movement to get out of a situation. I have to say that's pretty rare in our, situ in our current lives, in the way that our society is structured. It can happen. The difference here is, and I talked about, for instance, public speaking, that's a threat to our self-image, to our sense of who we are. That's perfect, actually. That's a perfect example. And I want to continue that example a little bit. I want to talk about how a really pure kind of, it's kind of reactive, but it's more of a limbic reactivity. It's not a, a self-reactivity. And you, a really good example of that is the dog that gets freaked out by fireworks, say on the 4th of July here in our country, and then goes and hides under the bed and shakes for a few hours. And they go into this state of limbic fear. That is actually a hyperreactivity, in part because the dog doesn't have the capacity to understand, you know, from the top down, okay, these are fireworks. They're not going to come into my house. I can lay on the couch and, and they bother me, but this is going to pass. So the dog state, it isn't a state where their self is insulted. It isn't a state where their self-image or their idea of who they are or what they want others to see them as is insulted. It's just a, a limbic fear state that, yeah, isn't actually 
may be appropriate to what's really going on, but it's not about self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's the differentiation. And so, I mean, that differentiates that sort of physical bodily response from um, emotional reactivity, which is obviously our subject today. You know, so they're two kind of different things. And we are focusing more in the realm of emotional reactivity connected to um, the threat of the self-image. Yeah, I think that's really the focus is the self-protective emotional reactivity. And there's an interesting thing that happens, for instance, when we get triggered with sadness, when we're emotionally reactive with sadness. Now, differentiating that from just grief or from a feeling of loss, there's kind of a self-sense that can get wrapped into the emotion of sadness that can amplify and extend and become a whole self-image in which we feel a loneliness or a heartbrokenness. Some people, for instance, feel that they'll never find the one, that their their life is the quest for the significant mm. other. You know, what's a the... A longing. A longing, an unrequited, unrequited love. I'll never be chosen. Right, I'll never be chosen. Um, others are kind of living in a gloomy, disappointed state. That can be reflective of a child who, for whatever reason just didn't get the love and attention, didn't get the, the four S's from mommy. So Wait, the four S's. <laughs> Somebody might just come in and listen to the podcast. Okay. So it's safe, seen, soothed, and secure. And you'll find a lot about that in our Boundaries podcast. And oh, sorry, Boundaries. Not self-regulation. Attachment. attachment and self-regulation, yeah, I think. They're those, the main they're ones, both aren't they? Yeah. So somebody who didn't get safe and seen and secure feelings from mom may bring that forward as a self-image that continually perpetuates of being kind of gloomy, disappointed, hopeless, even lost. So this is the sad reactivity. And, you know, that sad may often be pulling for something from the outside world. And incidentally, sometimes in that pulling for something from the outside world, we pull for things that other people don't want to give us or they sense the distortion yeah. of our reactive emotion and then they reject us. Mm-hmm. And so then that affirms the reality. Right. And so ultimately we the inner are unlovable, we are rejectable. In fact, we are continually rejected. Yeah, and there's something wrong with us. Right. You know, and that's often at the core, isn't it, of most most people's self-image. It's like, yeah, there's there's something deeply wrong with me. I'm not good enough. In every self-image that I've ever encountered, there are things. And and I think we've said this in the podcast before, but there is I'm not lovable. I'm not valuable or worthy. I'm weak. I don't matter. These kind of things, these deep ego states that become ways of kind of moving through the world. And often the reactivity is a protection against these things, these vulnerable states I mentioned earlier. The feeling of I'm helpless becomes I'm angry and I'm justified to be angry at this person who cut me off in traffic or who didn't let me in in traffic. Mm. So 
since I've brought that forward, I just want to say part of the work that I do with people and part of the reason of this podcast is that we can start to see that these are feeling states. These are not realities and facts. In fact, there's, there's something in popular psychology that says your feelings are real. They're just not facts. Mm. So yeah. we verify and normalize the fact that the feelings are there, but they're not facts about reality. You're not really unlovable. You're not really hopeless or helpless. These are feelings that pass through. And as we learn to tolerate these feeling states, rather than generate a lot of reactivity to defend against these feeling states, then they start to lose their power over us. Yeah. And to continue on, forgive me, as they start to lose their power over us, we come into being more real and more able to be here in the moment Mm. with what's really happening. But it's hard to do that because that requires that you you be vulnerable. Right, which is really key here because even in my own experience, I remember the first time, you know, whatever it was, 30 plus years ago, I ever heard the word vulnerability and and tried to apply that to myself and first of all i just i had no concept or feeling of what the hell that word meant yeah and i think when i actually kind of tried to be vulnerable i think i was pretty quickly like the person who i was trying to be vulnerable with looked at me and almost uh, kind of vomited in their mouth a little bit <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> but, you know, because I was trying, yeah. again, it was like a reactive, oh, now I need to be vulnerable. Now it's something, it was mm-hmm. an idea rather than an understanding. So vulnerability is no uh, no easy thing. And if, if vulnerability just sounds totally foreign, that's okay. That, that One doesn't have to uh, figure out how to be vulnerable. Being vulnerable just comes from moment by moment, being honest about what's going on for you. Yeah, it's that other buzzword, authenticity, mm. isn't it? But yeah, I mean, that is that is being in integrity with yourself. So yeah, the, all of our podcasts kind of work together very well. So, you know, we had the Boundaries podcast before this and we're talking about, you know, you understanding what your needs are and that's integral for you to create proper boundaries and then if you can create proper boundaries from a place of integrity you are less likely to be reactive at least in that area right and then you can have yourself and be real and being real is being of the present moment being in appropriate level of response rather than reactivity not needing emotions that are bigger and more distorted and this would be a good time to take a little break and we'll come back and talk about how these emotions relate to fight flight freeze and collapse So we're talking about our primitive emotions, fight, flight, freeze, collapse. So let's talk about what fight looks like. (laughs) We've all had a bit of an experience of um, 
that fight response. Yeah, that's probably the easiest and most relatable reactivity that we can talk about. Yeah, like we said earlier, it ten, tends to be the one that we go to when we think about reactivity, or when we feel reactivity, we kind of think it's associated with the fight response. So this is a sympathetic nervous system response, and we're getting a lot of adrenaline when we get that fight response. It can actually feel quite exciting, and it can be a bit addictive as well. Yeah, and you know, there's usually a component of pushing up against something or someone else. Yeah, and we we love that, don't we? You know, as human beings. I well, mean, some people, some people are very conflict averse. Yeah, so yeah. A I, lot of us love it. There's there's some people that really <laughs> love that, and some people that would do anything to avoid that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's true. And when those two people come into relationship or conflict with each other, there can be a real issue because there's not a meeting of styles. Yeah, they shouldn't be in relationship with each other. Well, sometimes it tends not that's to go sad. Well. Yeah, well, that's that's sad sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, so if we just think about some examples of the fight response. God, I saw this great reel, and I think I sent you this one, T, with this guy is in a traffic jam. And it looks like they've been in a traffic jam for a little while. Then you just suddenly see him angrily getting out of his car. Somebody behind him is filming him. And he marches up, you know, military walk to the to the line where the cars in front should be at the traffic lights and they were probably you know maybe three feet away from the line and he kind of like you know uses all the energy of his body you can see how tense he is his jaws locked his face is angry and he's pointing at that line and pointing again and pointing again. <laughs> you know the guy was just been sitting in his car like erupting so yeah, that's a that's definitely some fight energy there coming up against something. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a perfect perfect way to sort of describe that because you know a lot of us have felt that, whether that's being uh, a social media thread and suddenly you know you're getting into an argument about vaccines with somebody you know and suddenly you're in this fight response and it's like I'm just gonna win no matter what. And that's what it's about. And there's like this sense of, you know, wanting to annihilate this person, this human being who's suddenly become the opponent. And what's really funny about the social media scenario is that we tend, we don't even know who the person is on the other end of that. We've just got this reactivity in our body and we've, this is the person yeah. that's going to receive it. There's a good chance you could be fighting a bot. <laughs> Like, that's this it, is, yeah, the Russian bots. <laughs> this is actually, this is actually some real no. mastery when, when a uh, propaganda technique has you spending your time and life energy online arguing with the robot. I know, and it, it is so much life energy, isn't it? I mean, I had a huge realization around that and just really stopped doing it. And even now, when you feel that pull towards, you know, being in that comment thread, and I just, nope. Just back away. Yeah, I think that's really a, a good... We're going to get into the tools in a little while, but that's a good primer into starting to think about, is this worth it? Yeah, exactly. So this is the fight response, but we also have the flight response mm, as well. They're mm. like the opposite ends of the spectrum. Right, and this is where I talked about earlier. Our, uh, sometimes we're expressive of fear. Sometimes we... Um, Fear is kind of a taboo or forbidden emotion, so we repress it. 
But rarely do we ever just stop and feel the fear in our bodies, feel the fluttering in our guts and the, and the fire rising up um, into our chest and the, the expansion of the blood vessels. But the fear response is also a sympathetic response, and it's a response that's telling you, get the hell out of there. Mm. And so the reactivity that comes from fear or flight, withdrawal, evading, avoiding, um, disappearing. So the fear response is all about kind of like getting away. And there's a kind of an agitation in it if you feel it in the body. Mm, Yeah. So some scenarios where that might be happening. So you get into it with your partner and you you just completely withdraw to the other room. Maybe you stop talking for a little while. You kind of shut them out that kind of response or even maybe you just you just leave completely the house i mean (laughs) or you find yourself um always finding a reason why you can't talk about that important thing in the relationship that needs to be talked about oh yeah that that old chestnut so (laughs) that old chestnut yeah so we've got that flight response and sometimes you know i mean like physically when when we look at these in the you know real raw raw um, nervous system senses it's like running away from an animal or running away from another human being who's going to hurt you that's kind of why it's it, it it's there so literally if you think about it it is running the opposite way from whatever is threatening your sense of self because if you have to stay there and face it you might go into a deeper response which would be freeze or collapse yeah and the freeze response the freeze reaction is really one where you start to kind of shut down your systems there's a tension in the freeze this is what's different from the freeze and the collapse is within the freeze there's a kind of a held tension there's a readiness to spring out of it and back into the flight but there's a frozenness. It's like everything comes to a halt. Um, We could say the blood runs cold. And in that moment, a lot of your uh, thinking facilities go offline. But what's really important is that you're disengaged while still being in the situation. Mm. So it's like a disassociation from the body. Well, that's actually, I think that's, again, going one step further into collapse. But it's kind of a, a situation where you're there, but you're not reachable. So we could call it a kind of a, a particularly okay. defended state, a frozen state where um, you're not in relationship anymore. Yeah, I know what you mean. A protection of that kind. You've, you've, you've gone to Narnia. That's what I call it. Yeah, it might be it might be Narnia. I'm not sure that might also, you know, be going into the collapse because the frozen state, it's, it's very specific... Um, uh, you, you can be you can be very leaden. You can be very icy. You can be uh, like woolly or rubbery. Those those states can kind of get uh, impenetrable. Mm. I think is is what the the word is okay. that best exemplifies I, yeah. the frozen or the uh, freeze state. Well, what about when you get spacey? Yes. So what happens then? is usually when you get spacey, you can, you can start from the free state 
to move over into a spaciness, but my understanding of it is it tends, that's when you're tending over to collapse, and that's when you're really leaving the body. You're getting into this kind of like space outside the body. You're there, but you're not there. And it's almost, we've talked about this before, it's almost like you're going outside the body and you can't even, you don't feel like reality is real anymore. Mm. And that's the collapse state and that's a state where the tension has actually gone because you're not even inhabiting the situation anymore you're actually basically waiting to be eaten frankly right yeah it's not good we don't really want to be there but i mean that's when you've gone so far outside your window of tolerance right and i I think i mentioned the window of tolerance a little bit earlier because i think like the the fight or flight responses you know they're very they're very much there, they're kind of in your face, and there's a presence about them. Yeah, there's kind of a, um, there's a vitality to them. Vitality, that's yeah. a good way of putting it, yeah. Whereas, yeah, you know, with these other kind of more freeze, collapse states, it's sort of we've given up in a way. Yeah, Left. we're given up. In, in the freeze state, we're kind of like in a frozen pattern waiting to escape. In the collapse state, ultimately, where we've gone to, we're in kind of this hopeless place. And oftentimes there'll be feelings of hopelessness with collapse, mm. where we feel like there's nothing else we can do, but maybe the predator will believe that we're dead and, and not want to eat us. Or, or <laughs> it'll, it'll help us in case we are being eaten to not feel as much physical pain. Right, yeah. So you like the, you're the mole in the hole. And, you know, the eagle is circling. And all you can do is just hope that that eagle can't get its beak into your hole and you're just okay yeah you've done everything you could do at that point and so uh there's a real dejection and the reactivity around that is what what happens is that you know and this can happen around different triggers which we'll talk about but something that might trigger that would be like a deep and ongoing rejection or ridicule where you feel like there's no way you can stand up against this bigger person who keeps coming after you over and over again and finally you collapse into a ball. Wow, I just have like a thought then and this is going off our structure a little bit but um, a little while ago I read a, a study about these, these well they did it on a, a group of prisoners who were in like a maximum security hospital and you know they've done bad things let's just call them predators and they got them to observe a group of women and they picked out which is like i mean i think they said 99 percent accuracy the women who had been victimized previously and they picked them out as potential victims. And, and you just saying that just made me realize, oh, they're walking around in quite a collapsed state. You know, so they're sort of like, you know, malleable. Um, they can be controlled easily in that state. Yeah, there's almost, a, um, there's almost an embedded victimhood in that. And this is not said with judgment but there is a kind of an embedded and a communicated victimhood in a in a collapsed state and in a collapsed posture. Um, it's kind of simultaneously asking not to be victimized and asking to be victimized, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm not victim-blaming here. What I'm saying is that uh, we do read things heuristically and 
bodies give people cues. One collapsed body may give a cue for somebody else to bring help and support, while another, somebody else viewing the collapsed body that is a predator, may see that um, posture and um, even facial expressions and so forth, tone of voice, as opportunities to victimize someone. Exactly. And they were very specific um, body language cues. And I, I will put that in the show notes as well. So you can have a little look at that research study. Yeah, that was a little side note. But that's really interesting stuff that you came into. And I remember you talking about that a couple of weeks ago. It did mind blow. This is a, a good point. I was going to bring this in a little bit later. But there is an amazing book that I discovered about 25 years ago. It's by Stanley Kellerman. And this is for people that might want to kind of take a deeper dive into this whole somatic psychology world that we're really starting to talk about around the bodies. Um, the book is by Stanley Kellerman, K-E-L-E-M-A-N, and it's called Emotional Anatomy. And what's beautiful about it is he has all these really graphic drawings of the different body types that come from chronic structuring of fight, flight, freeze, or even like disgust reactions. And disgust is something we didn't actually talk that much about, but I think that is one of the things you also find in the freeze, is that there's a kind of place where the anger goes cold and mm -hmm. it turns into kind of a disgust and even a hatred. And in that experience, there's a, there's a kind of an experience of re ultimate rejection and revolt revulsion but it can be in kind of frozen in place so to speak because there's not a lot of outlet for that mm. so it can be that's something that uh, when you look at this emotional anatomy book you can see someone who is chronically um, repulsed yeah just as a point about that book because i'm not sure how much research has gone into it you know and so i do want to say that I'm not saying, or neither of us are saying that this is real science-based, but it is extremely interesting, you know, his thoughts and the way he has developed his perspective on the nervous system and our, um, I guess, our inner somatic experience and how we present that outwardly. Yeah, yeah. and certainly this is one view of it. It's just very graphic, and it, I think it's uh, something that could strike very viscerally. Get you thinking. Uh, get you, yeah, kind of, kind of cues some further curiosity, you know, ultimately uh, to the somatic psychology that goes back to Wilhelm Reich and, um, and Alexander Lowen, who are a couple of the people who started this. And then we move on to Bessel van der Kolk, who we have mentioned in other shows. And I also don't want to leave out Peter Levine. Those are the pioneers of the somatic psychology. So the next thing we want to do is we want to talk about where reactivity shows up. And kind of first and foremost, the place that reactivity shows up is in our personal one-on-one -on -one relationships. Well, yeah, nobody can trigger us like our intimate partners or intimate relationships. And it's such a strange thing, isn't it? You know, that like the people that we really love the most, the people that are most important to us and we value are, are people who we have that reactivity with. Yeah, I think it, it is true. And it's not surprising because we value them so much and we value that part of ourselves that they hold. Oh, yeah. And so 
Yeah, so if they say something to us, you, you, let's just let's just be sort of you know rudimentary. You know, you're a, you're a bad partner in so many ways or whatever because you value them so much and their opinion of you. It really hits your sense of self. Yeah, and, and hard. Depending on how much investment we've put in, which is usually a lot, that's why we're together with these people. That can really hurt. And now compound that with the fact that partners often know what other partners buttons are what other partners triggers are and you've got a real recipe for all of the forms of reaction from fight fight flight freeze and collapse yeah and ultimately this isn't you know our, our like intimate relationships are places where we can grow because of this very thing yeah, and oftentimes it takes a little help, and it definitely takes some uh, increasing of our skills. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, what's that? Was that quote? I bought to your t-shirt a while back. <laughs> oh, no, actually, you ended up buying it for yourself, didn't you? I'm In not the sure. End. Yeah. I was going to buy it, and then you bought it yourself, and I was I was rea- reacting You're to that. Again. <laughs> I have a t-shirt that says, uh, "You'll have to you'll have to say it in French." It says. Hell is other people in French. Les enfers, c'est les autres. <laughs> Did I get that right, French people? All of our French listeners. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I forget now who said it. I think it was Jean-Paul Sartre or something that yeah. said uh, hell is other people. It was one of those existentialists. But uh, some of the particular hell of other people that we have to deal with is in our families. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And there's another area, isn't it, where we we tend to get a lot of reactivity. It is common, the, the Thanksgiving in America, the the Christmas dinners, this is where, you know, all of this stuff tends to stew and, and you know, boil up and boil over. Right. And we've got the parents, our parents, and... Everybody has certain triggers around their parents. um, There's a great variety of them. If you have authoritarian parents, you might have rebellious triggers and don't tell me what to do triggers. If you have uh, parents that were neglectful, you might be, you never gave me what you want, what I wanted and what I needed triggers. Um, There's all manner of those kind of reactivities that can come up. And there's also reactivity with siblings. Yeah, exactly. We, again, these are the closest people to us and they know how to push our buttons, shall we say. And then there's also the attachment system trigger as well, like within relationships. Mm. You know, so... Right, yeah. which is, if you listen to our two attachment podcasts, it's a mimicry oftentimes of what we experience with parents growing up. Yeah, you know, and so I feel like on the the scale of reactivity, you know, we might have these sort of like smaller, um, smaller scale reactivity, like low risk stuff in traffic, social media or whatever. But then you have the higher risk stuff in relationships. And I think that the attachment reactivity is on that higher risk. What I mean by that is, is the volatility or it doesn't have to be volatility it could be the other way that you know the collapse it could be much greater 
and it can be much more difficult to work with this aspect of the nervous system. Yeah, we shouldn't underestimate the power of that, especially when it is linked to attachment, because this stuff goes right to the roots of what's been built into our nervous system. Yeah, so working specifically on attachment wounding is a really good idea if you're interested in also working in reactivity within your intimate partnerships. Mm-hmm. And even to some degree in your family, especially uh, growing up and getting some distance from your parents, which is an important part of maturity. Yeah, totally. So Alex, another place uh, where we're seeing a lot of reactivity is just in the culture at large right now. And not that there hasn't always been a lot of reactivity, but we kind of have these engines now, really what are propaganda engines, which are kind of pumping us full of reactivity at all times. They're kind of priming us for reactivity by making us feel scared or angry. And then they're giving us uh, content to be scared and angry about. And then they're just pumping this out 24-7. Yeah, you said something interesting earlier, actually, just when we were chatting about, you know, this culture really valuing reactivity and there are certain and i think you know if you think about it in the the micro level there are certain people in relationships to each other who really value reactivity and then there are other people who don't and this happens on a, a country level as well um if you think about like i would say you know china or japan or whatever you can't show anger so you can't have that type of reactivity but you tend towards the freeze yeah, I don't know um, as much about China and Japan, but I know, for instance, it's very explicitly stated when I was first going to Thailand in the 90s, the Thai people do not do anger. And the Thai people, if you become angry or aggressive with people in Thailand, that will not be met well because no. they do not receive that. And that's a, a very different culture to the kind of culture that is bred even this... Uh, this um, Karen situation that we kind of <laughs> <laughs> the Karen thing. She is. I the mean, the Karen, Karen is such a symbol of you know who we are becoming, basically as a culture. Yeah, I think it's a you know I think there's we have what ends up happening is we see something and we make a cartoon of it, and, and Karen is the current cartoon of a certain kind of reactivity and entitlement and and um, self-aggrandizement. Mm. Yeah. And and so she is exactly what we're talking about here. And like T says, you know, the caricature is a good one to use as an example. So everything is an affront to Karen if it isn't perfectly the way she wants it. Yeah. And that yeah. that is, you know, a rigid ego position. And hey, sometimes we need to stand up and say, this is not right. And I'd like to see something change. That's important uh, for our autonomy. But when we walk through life with that kind of aggrieved, entitled feeling, which is definitely being spurred on by uh, the type of media and the media that we uh, take in, when we walk through life aggrieved like that, we reinforce our preciousness. Our preciousness, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, it just, it just, I mean, what you're talking about really is this hyper individualism. And, it's, you know, America is kind of the, the symbol 
of hyper-individualism. It's sort of like apex capitalism. And everything is about me and mine and what I own. Yeah, and it is kind of biting us in the ass right now. Yeah, and it, I, there are many positive aspects to capitalism. But I do think that we've got to this point now where it's really hating us. Yeah, it goes along with this idea that I have to have an opinion about everything. I have to take a stand about everything. And not just after I've considered it, but right now. We yeah. need to know where you stand about this. Everybody's self-expression on everything, you know, whether it's from something as complex as epidemiology. Mm. <laughs> to like, you know, what day the bins should go out. The, the garbage <laughs> it's it's like everybody is the expert yeah so this actually as we're kind of moving towards the body and moving towards talking about how these triggers ultimately are in the body let's talk a little bit about that yeah because ultimately that is where it exists so we are when we say in in relationships this is where this reactivity tends to happen we, and in we, our culture. And in the and culture. In the families, right? Yeah, and we, we're talking about sort of, you know, the external environment. But actually, it's all happening in our own bodies. And, you know, we've got to this point now where people say, you triggered me. And that can't possibly happen. It's almost, that's almost like a paradox. Like, nobody can actually trigger you. You're triggered. So, ultimately, if you're triggered... It is up to you to own that, to take responsibility for it, and to try and handle the charge of it in your own body. Right, and when we say we're triggered, we're talking particularly about um, emotional triggering. So where if you say a certain word, I'm going to have a violent reaction against you, or I'm going to uh, shun you. Um, we have these kind of preloaded reactions now to certain things. And the difficulty with having preloaded reactions is that it takes away our creative possibility in each moment to address life in a creative and spontaneous way. It's like we're basically just programming our, ourselves to be reactive robots. Yeah, and then, you know, people will find when they get into relationships, let's say they had parents who very contemptuous of each other and they might suddenly find entering into that you know contempt is the reflex position mm. you know and that's a reactive place because it's not real it's not coming from from you it's like an old record playing yeah so any of these things you know anger can be translated down contempt collapse hopelessness all these things can be translated down and i think even epidemiologically I'm sorry, not, I think uh, epigenetically they yeah. can be transferred down the line. Yeah, that's that's really true. You know what? Like, I hadn't even thought about the epigenetics of emotional reactivity, but that's a really good point. And I'm not going to go into this because I'm not an expert, but I'm interested in it, you know, and I'm watching this evolving as a science and it's becoming more apparent that there is more in the sphere of epigenetics than we had imagined right so i think that just reminds me to tell everybody hey it's not your fault if you're reactive uh somehow the reactivity got in you either ancestrally or 
transmission from your parents or something you came to believe over time. What's important is we want to start to see our way out of this reactivity into uh, a creative moment of presence in each moment. And bringing it back into the body, I was thinking about all these different uh, metaphors we have because this will really bring it viscerally to us. And these metaphors we have about reactivity hitting the body like we say oh that really punched me in the gut or yeah or um, I think you said earlier you know my blood run, ran cold yeah the blood runs cold or I've got my hackles up yeah I, you know oh god that was a roller coaster or her voice strikes me like fingernails on a chalkboard <laughs> yeah yeah what else I mean like butterflies in the stomach yeah you know? it, we really have kind of endless like uh body-based metaphors for what a reaction in the body feels like yet we still say oh that reaction is happening because somebody over there did something to me or said something i know it's it is i think it is quite amazing and so when we get into like the tools and stuff we're going to talk a little bit about meditation and observing what's going on in your body the monkey mind and all of this sort of stuff so from butterflies in our stomach to getting punched in the gut to getting our hackles up, it comes down to this deep experience of the body. I can even think of a moment uh, just the other day. I was feeling into something and I realized there was something I didn't want to feel. And as I felt that in my body, I can't even remember what it was now, but I felt a little line from my tear duct, very faint line running down through my chest and out my right arm. And I realized whatever it was, I didn't want to feel that. And I was having a rejection of that very subtle feeling in my body. And that was a reactivity. So the bodies count. The bodies is where it happens. And the bodies is where we're going to, are where we're going to learn about these things. Well, let's talk about some of the tools that are going to help us manage our reactivity. Alex, the first thing that we need to be able to do is really come to understand and believe that reactivity is not serving us. And we have to get that deeply. And we have to want a better way and understand that there is a better way out there. There is the way of our own presence in the moment. We do have the capacity as adults to attend to things, attend to life freshly and with spontaneity. Yeah, and I think as you're you're going down this path, it's really very important to work with self-compassion. Now, I don't mean just know what self-compassion is, because I think a lot of people, they read it in a book or they do a couple of meditations, like, I know what self-compassion is, but they don't actually practice it, like, abacadabra. Do. That's a practice. That's how you internalize it into your nervous system. Eventually that becomes A, B, C, D. You make words, you make sentences, and it starts to become fluent. But there is a practice that needs to take place because there's going to be some shame that comes up when you see the amount of reactivity that you have, and you need to be able to hold yourself in that if you don't, then there is a possibility that you end up repressing your feelings. And I have seen this happen. 
I have seen people within spiritual communities that I have worked in and lived in go psychotic from repressing their emotions. So it can get quite serious. So I want you to hear that. Practice self-compassion. Don't just know what it is that's really going to assist you on this journey. Thanks for that. And from that understanding, something we need to know, it's actually magical, is that emotions don't need to be repressed, but they also don't always have to be expressed. So we can kind of feel caught between the the repression and the expression. I, you know that story I tell about the monk all the time? Oh my God, you should tell that story. That's a okay. great story, yeah. Well, you know, when I was in my um, early kind of journeys and going around and thinking about even maybe uh, heading into a monastery and, and uh, taking robes for about five minutes, I was sitting on the porch one evening at a uh, Northern California Buddhist monastery and there was this older monk there. They call them Achans because they've been, I guess, at least 10 years as a monk. And I was really desperate for some wisdom around how I, as a young man, could deal with all this kind of powerful, energetic, angry energy. And I simply said to him, you know, I'm having this really big conflict about what to do with my anger. I know that repressing it isn't the way to go. And, and I also feel that, like, expressing it isn't safe and it isn't it isn't good for the world around me and i just don't know what to do and i could see him kind of puff up with a certain kind of energy as he burst out just repress it then oh my god (laughs) and it took me back so much it even kind of took me out of that tradition and out of that monastery entirely because i was like wow these guys can sit there and wear their robes and and uh, mind their manners and all, but if it's all just about repressing ourselves, repressing our aliveness, and and the monk that's been doing this for over a decade and is called Achan, which is like, you know, master monk, <laughs> doesn't know any more about dealing with his anger, I need to go find somebody that does. And, and ultimately I did. And that nugget of feeling our feelings, feeling our emotion, rather than repressing, rather than expressing. And the feeling comes back to feeling it in the body, breathing it in the body. And this is the really the next tool that we come to, which is actually linking our breath to our feeling and starting to feel the ability to have emotions charge up and move through our bodies. In the same way that we digest food, we can move emotions through our bodies. And we can do that by really deeply understanding our breath through feeling our breath. Yeah. Do we hold it in? Do we hold it out? Are our ribs tight? Is the breath, is the breath restricted from going below our diaphragms? Is the breath tight in our jaw? starting to feel our breath it is one of the most powerful techniques it's taught in meditation and we can focus on it in meditation but if we take that as a tool throughout the day gauging where am i by listening to how the breath is operating in my body yeah i think that's a really important point as a well one of the 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 things i'm trained in is yoga and 
forever as a yoga teacher, I felt like I was saying, watch your breath. What is your breath telling you? Learn to read your breath. You know, so a student would land on the mat and we would say, okay, let's just start to breathe. How does the breath feel? Is it constricted today? Is it easy to breathe? Are you feeling open? Where is the breath landing? So we can get a good read on ourselves via just simply watching how the breath is moving in the body. Yeah, and that opens us up to our whole interoceptive state, which is the feeling within ourselves, the the embodied feeling that we have. Yeah, ultimately that is what we're looking for, is more intelligence with this interoceptive wisdom. So that's the wisdom of the inner body, feeling the body from the inside out. And as we start to feel the body from the inside out, we're also starting to learn, what is it telling us? Okay, oh, I feel this tightness across my chest. What feeling is that? And then we name the emotion, name the feeling. Oh, well, I'm a little mad. I feel anger. Oh, okay. So we start to feel into that anger in the body, and we start to feel how the breath moves when there's anger. And coming back to your talk about self-acceptance, Allow that anger to be there. Feel that anger. Give the anger a moment. Yeah, well, a lot of people know as well, too, you know, the, the body is kind of a, an unsafe place. So, you know, maybe that tracks back into even talking about, you know, the attachment system and stuff. But a lot, a lot of people are crippled with anxiety in the modern world because they are like little mice running around their own heads because they're not accessing the body and so anxiety is basically like a a a response where it feels too dangerous it feels too unsafe to be in my body to even name or validate the feelings or emotions that are happening and so I have to be in the head and I have to be in a narrative about it and I mean I'm sure you've experienced this in your way because I experience this in my my coaching all of the time with women when they come in and they knew if they haven't done any sort of interoceptive work or somatic body work what I find is I'll say how are you feeling and they will tell me a whole story about you know their day what somebody said to them right you know and and And, I'm like none of it has to do with how they're feeling yeah and it actually, you know, when you're guiding people, it takes a while to learn to be gentle enough but direct enough to say, okay, I understand that's what's happening, but what are you actually feeling? Because it can take minutes, weeks, or months to help someone back into the feelings in their body. So it's a really good point you make. I'll, I'll make a side note that when we move up into our heads into thoughts and analysis and stories, that's actually a form of flight reactivity Mm, we've gone into flight we've gone into flight from the feelings in our body yeah exactly so so you know the fact that you are a body coach and you're a body orientated teacher means that you teach all these different techniques that people can get back into their bodies with you know you're talking about your yoga or pilates or the weightlifting there's all they're all different entryways and different types of entryways in the body So there's no one size fits all, but what we want to ask our listeners is where is it safe for you to explore your feelings? Where is it safe for you to explore your big emotions? 
Yeah. For some people, you know, meditation would be would be great. And that would be a fantastic, it is a fantastic way to, to start to explore your own somatic experience and what's going on for you. But for some people, that would just be a catastrophe. Yeah, so meditation is highly recommended if that feels safe for you and that feels right for you. And it often can feel safe to meditate for five minutes, but not for 50 minutes. So take that into account. I usually uh, suggest that people meditate for five minutes to start out. Yeah. Try that for a week. I think I started out with five minutes, then guided meditations, you know, it took mm-hmm. years, you know, before I was able to sit for a few hours. Yeah. And for instance, you like guided meditations. I prefer to sit in silence. So we have a different um, meditation style, but everybody has something that works for them. Everybody has something different that works. As you're getting into the body and kind of feeling these emotions in a live way, it might be dance or going to the gym or again doing yoga or being in the forest or fishing or camping. There's even times when you could just be in your own bathtub and in that bathtub you could blow bubbles and make sounds in the water just to feel what it's like, just to do something different. You can splash around or move your body in different ways. We're talking about a way to get emotional freedom through body freedom. Yeah, what's really important is the intention there because, you know, a lot of people who I know, they they use dance or even, you know, going to the gym as a way to disassociate. Yeah, so that can it, happen. Yeah, and even yoga, actually, you know, you will find that a lot in in, in yoga, a way to not only disassociate, but to, you know, forget about the real problems, the real things that are going on in their lives. So the intention with the movement, even meditation, you know, people can use it in that way. So if the intention is to come back into the body and to really be connected with what is happening for you, with what is present, then you will get the goods. And it's just up to you to explore which method works best. Yeah, that's a good point about the intention because most things can be used to check in or to check out. Um, Hey, sometimes it's okay to check out. There's nothing wrong with doing that once in a while. But we also have these really valuable practices and times that we can check in, that we can come into being more alive, more present in ourselves. And when I say present in ourselves, I mean being, feeling the presence of ourselves, feeling the presence of aliveness in ourselves, feeling the presence of joy, feeling the presence of love, feeling the presence of curiosity and delight, feeling even the presence of kind of anger and... and uh, contempt sometimes but Mm. feeling alive from whatever you're feeling so that we're not living a kind of a dulled existence or a limited existence or a compartmentalized existence yeah a good question to just ask yourself is when a, a strong emotional feeling comes up and your first reaction is to resist it just ask yourself can i allow this can i allow this and if you just keep, so I'm going to say it like a, a mantra and can I allow it? Sometimes the answer may be no, that's okay. And I would 
honour that. But most of the time, you'll find there's a little bit of an opening into it. And then you have a beautiful connection and exploration which can take place. And I might even add, if it's hard to allow something, you can ask, can I allow 5% of this? Yeah. And if you're dealing with something that's complex and traumatic, you may not be able to. That's okay. You may need to get some help allowing that or dealing with that feeling. Not all feelings are just something you can simply go dance away in a Saturday afternoon dance class. Yeah, that's very true. So yeah, if we're talking about you know trauma states and stuff like that, it's definitely going to be best to work with somebody because you can re-traumatize you know, by you know visiting certain places in your body because you know these, these emotions, these feelings, they get contained within the nervous system. The nervous system exists within the body as well as your mind. So there's a couple other tools that we can work with, for instance. Yeah, we can brainstorm our triggers. Uh. Yeah, so this one, I think, is really helpful. If you just sit, you know, with a piece of paper and a pen, or you can do it in your phone if you want, that's my preference. You just write down, uh, okay, what triggers me? What triggers me? And you just kind of go into it and start to look at all the different places of your life where you know definitely that you get triggered. We all have them, right? And you can just start to, you know, explore this. As you go about your day, as you go about your week, you can collect more information. So you can understand the little kind of patterns that are happening. Are there any sort of links between them? You know, what, what's happening there? So list of triggers exercise, that's one that you can play with. Yeah, and as you're doing that list of triggers, you want to feel in, feel the trigger. Yeah, like, you know, we were talking before we did this, and we were talking about this list of triggers exercise. We're talking about the easy trigger to the feel. easy triggers, Something that's yeah. not like, you know, the grand trigger of your life. Yeah, and I was like masks <laughs> <laughs> and I was like masks what do you mean well so I mean how do you listeners feel about wearing a mask in public this is a very charged discussion usually so you can get some immediate feedback from that and start to understand how the reactivity appears in your body yeah and we're not suggesting one way or another just see that might have just a little bit of charge there, so you can feel that in your body, feel that in your breath. What happens when you think about wearing masks in public? <laughs> yep. So that's a little exercise that you can do. Another one is um, a kind of a visualization. We're trying to hit different sectors so that there's different ways to play with looking at reactivity. Um, one thing is that because our reactivity is ultimately often protecting our vulnerability, we can use visualizations of safe places, safe people, and even particularly strong protectors that are with us. So we can imagine somebody that is benevolent and strong and caring and aligned with us that would stand for us when somebody would try to put us down or stand for us when somebody would um, misread us or not understand us 
or stand for us when somebody would um, transgress against some of our boundaries. Yeah. I used to do this in London actually a lot when I was on the, the tube. I would I would just be walking around listening to relaxation meditations, really trying to create that safe space because it's such a, a charged environment. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it can be as easy as just finding who you would like as your protector and thinking of them. Maybe it's Nelson Mandela, maybe it's the Dalai Lama. Yeah. But just considering that and then using that visual to expand out into a sense of feeling protected and supported. Yeah, and it's especially important when you are you know, doing any inner work, actually, to you know understand where it's safe for you, um, how you can feel safe and how you can create environments of safety. It's especially important because you, you will be basically you know, picking old wounds Right, and I want to qualify everything that we're saying here by saying that if you're in very serious trouble, you need to get, first of all, professional help. And second of all, if you're in a violent or abusive situation, this is not what we're talking about. You need to get distance, you need to get safety in these situations. We're not talking about dealing with reactivity when what you really need is to move away from a dangerous situation. And I want to make that really clear. And just want to check in with you, Alex, and see if there's anything else that we might have to add before we finish the talk today. Well, I think that covered it for me. What about you? Yeah, I think we gave an overview. Uh, We didn't include everything. But what I would like listeners to take away is that There is a way to feel more safe. There is a way to feel that we have a ground to stand on, that there is support for us to be real, for us to be true, and for us to be alive and present in the world that we're in. It's challenging. Um, We don't have to judge ourselves when we're reactive. We don't even have to dislike our own reactivity. It's coping strategies, it's inheritance. What we really need to know is that there is a better way and that as we learn to move through life with that better way and be more connected to our own wholeness and integrity, that life will also come forward and support us. And I mean specifically that we won't be bringing roadblocks and obstacles to our own ability to be happy, creative, and even productive in our lives. That was wonderful. Thank you. And you know, guys, this is not an easy thing to do. So if you listen to this, you decide to embark on this journey. Godspeed. (laughs) Godspeed indeed. Listeners, this is actually episode eight. And we had decided originally that we wanted to do a nice flow of eight episodes that worked really well together and so after this one we are going to take a break we're going to head up to the river we'll do some self-regulation we will get creative and then we're going to come back a little bit later after we've recorded another group of podcasts that work really well together now we might just 
pop in and surprise you every now and then with a podcast if we feel inspired. So stay tuned. And thank you so much to everybody who's tuned in thus far. We really appreciate you. And if you have any feedback, please feel free to send us a message. Our contact details are in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Please like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and share it as often as you like. You can find Alex at thewomansbodycoach.com and you can find me, T, at beingrealnow.org. Special thanks to Reed Anderson for our theme music. Music.